Good morning, church. Uh, we do want to acknowledge that today is Remembrance Day, and so this morning uh, our nation is honoring our fellow Canadians who have served and died in the military. Um, as a Mennonite Brethren Church, we have a complex relationship with Remembrance Day. Uh, one, of our, one of our key distinctives in our stream of Christianity, which is known as the Anabaptist uh, stream of Christianity, is uh, that we hold a position of love and non-resistance. And so we believe that we're called to, um, to avoid violence and to be peacemakers in all situations, including avoiding uh, armed conflict. And, and during times of national conscription, we believe that it's our calling to provide alternative service. And so there's a tension that we live in today because certainly thousands of soldiers have displayed admirable bravery and selflessness and sacrifice even in the midst of war. I'm, I'm sure including loved ones of people in this room. And yet, we, we also believe that the use of violence to achieve political ends is contrary to the way of Jesus. And so, um, Anabaptists at times have worn, uh, worn white poppies uh, or, or special pins in order to indicate that our stance toward warfare is, is different. I think we've got a couple of those going on in our congregation today, and, and if that's what you're doing, more power to you. Uh, on stage, we're wearing, we're wearing red poppies, and we are going to have a, a moment of silence uh, in just a minute. But, but in doing that, we're doing something maybe um, with a few more layers than, than a traditional Remembrance Day celebration. And so I, I just want to clarify that, that as we're wearing poppies and as we have a moment of silence in a sec, um, we're doing it to signify four things. Number one, that we uh, acknowledge the sacrifice of those who have laid down their lives in war. Number two, that we mourn the fact that human sinfulness leads us again and again to violence. Number three, that we look forward to the day when God will bring complete peace to the cosmos. And number four, that in the meantime, we commit ourselves to being peacemakers in all situations. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're, we're close to 11 o'clock. So we'll, we'll take our moment of silence now. And so I hope your phones are off, okay? Um, and so we're just going to take a minute of silence to acknowledge and, and to signify those four things I just listed. If you want, you can pray silently, silently or you can just reflect silently. And then uh, at the end of our time of silence, I'll close us off with prayer. So let's come together in a moment of silence.
God of love, our hearts are broken as we consider the violence of war. And together we long for a world that reflects the words of Isaiah when he wrote, the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. So Lord, we thank you for the freedom and the peace that we enjoy in this country. For those whose lives and families are touched with loss because of war, we pray your comfort and your strength and your healing. We pray that you would guide our leaders away from, uh, from violence and guide humanity away from hatred. We pray that justice and mercy would go forward in this world. And we pray that you would empower us, your church, to wage peace in this world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our great Prince of Peace. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, today, more than most days, is a day when people gather at graves. It's a day where we honor the dead, and, and for many people, that brings them to graves. And when you come to a grave, you often come carrying something. Flowers are probably the most common thing, maybe a wreath. Sometimes you come carrying a casket or an urn. I've, uh, I've come to graves carrying a Bible, a guitar, an umbrella, carrying the great-grandchild of the deceased. When you, when you walk up to a grave, often you're carrying something. You're often carrying something on the outside, and you're definitely also carrying things on the inside. You're carrying, you're carrying the memories. You're carrying maybe some regret. You're car carrying the smiles and the scars and all the things that were said and left unsaid, done and left undone. When you come to a grave, you're, you're often carrying things both on the outside and on the inside. And today, we're continuing our our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we're continuing with the story of Lazarus. We left the story off um, last week, and Lazarus has died, and, and Jesus and the crowd, have, they've gathered at his, at his tomb. And we focused, we focused on Jesus last week, but there's this, this whole crowd of people with him, and all of them, as we'll see, are carrying something. And what Jesus does here is going to transform all of it. So I want to ask you to picture it with me. Go with me in your imagination to this place. Okay, we're in a town in ancient Israel called Bethany. It's just, it's a few miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus walks down a dirt road. Behind him is a crowd of 20 or 30 people. They walk down this dirt road to a cave with a large round stone rolled across its entrance. It's the tomb of their dear friend, Lazarus. And as with most graveside gatherings, all these people share something in common. They loved the deceased. But beyond that, they're all carrying something inside them. 
On one side of the group is, uh, is a group of 12 men who came into town with Jesus. They're his disciples. They've been following him around for, uh, for three years. And uh, they're, they're nervous. You can see them. Their 12 pairs of eyes kind of keep darting back and forth. They keep looking over their shoulders. They're scanning the road, particularly the road that leads to Jerusalem. A few of them are carrying weapons and, uh, and more often than usual, um, their hands come to rest on the exposed hilts of their swords and daggers. See, the dis- disciples have come to the grave of Lazarus and they're carrying fear. Three days ago, they were in a town called Bethany beyond the Jordan and a messenger approached them in the marketplace. And John tells us that his message for Jesus was in verse 3 of John chapter 11. uh, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. And John continues and tells us, but when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? They had been in Bethany beyond the Jordan only a couple of weeks. They had fled there uh, after a confrontation in Jerusalem, which we find in John chapter 10. Jesus had publicly uh, claimed equality with God, which is blasphemy. And Jerusalem is the epicenter of Jewish religion. And so the, the crowd in Jerusalem was loyal to the, the Jerusalem religious establishment. And so they had, they had tried to have Jesus arrested and executed. But Jesus and his disciples had, had narrowly escaped, and they had escaped to this place about a day's journey away called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that was a place of safety. It was a place where people uh, sympathized with them. And now Jesus is saying, let's go back. Let's go back to another city called Bethany. It's, it's Bethany near Jerusalem, which, as the name suggests, is near Jerusalem. It's a few miles down the road from Jerusalem with its angry crowds and its religious leaders and its soldiers and its spears and shackles and stones. Rabbi, are you you going there again? John continues, and he tells us, Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world, but at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. In the ancient world, um, before there were watches and clocks, they measured time just according to the daylight. And an hour was not a fixed amount of time. An hour was simply one-twelfth of however much daylight there was. And so in the winter, an hour was shorter because the day was shorter and longer in the summer. 
And how they would measure their time was, as long as the sun was up, it was working time. And when the sun started to go down, that's how they knew it was time to stop working. When Jesus, and what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is he's saying, it may be almost sunset for my ministry. It may be the 11th hour. But the sun has not yet set on my ministry. It's still working time, and there's work to be done. So let's get to work. Jesus went on to tell them in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. And then, and then Thomas, and I'm sure this was under his breath and out of earshot from Jesus, Thomas said, Let's go too and die with Jesus. And so the disciples have now come to Bethany near Jerusalem. They've come to the tomb of their friend Lazarus, and they've come carrying fear. On the other side of Jesus is Martha. Martha is the older, sis- the older of Lazarus's two sisters, and here, here at the grave of her brother, you can see her sadness, but it's contained. Her clothes are neat, and she moves around deliberately. Uh, she's near the front of the group because she's, she's the older sister, and like most older siblings, she takes care of business. Any older siblings in the room? That's, that's yours truly. And so in Luke chapter 10, um, there's another story of Mary and Martha. And Jesus is in their home, and, and Mary sits in the living room and listens to Jesus teach. And Martha is the one who, who is putting dinner in the oven and setting the table and lighting the candles and pouring the wine. And then she gets, Mary, uh, she gets angry at Mary, saying, Mary, aren't you going to help me out? There's work to do. Martha's a little bit type A. And so when Jesus finally came into town, it was Martha, the perfect hostess. It was Martha, the responsible older sister, who went out to meet Jesus. She hurried out to greet him, and she met him on the road. And John, 20, or John 11, 21 tells us, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Some people uh, read that verse and they think that's an accusation. Jesus, why weren't you here? Why didn't you hurry? It's your fault my brother died. It can't be an accusation. It can't be an accusation uh, because verse 17 tells us when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in in the grave for four days. He had already been in his grave for four days. Now, we can reconstruct the timeline of this story. We know that it's about a day's journey between Bethany uh, near Jerusalem and Bethany beyond the Jordan. And verse 6 told us that Jesus waited two days. So here's the timeline of the story. Day one, the messenger leaves Bethany near Jerusalem to come get Jesus. And that takes up all of day one. Day two, Jesus waits. Day three, Jesus waits. Day four, Jesus uh, makes the one-day journey 
to Bethany near Jerusalem. The whole story is only four days long, and, and Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. So that means that Lazarus died hours, maybe minutes after the messenger left on the first day. By the time Jesus got the message, uh, Lazarus was, was dead and buried. Jesus' waiting did not kill Lazarus, and Martha would have known that, so she's not blaming Jesus here. She's just expressing her grief. She's just expressing, because, because she knows, she knows that it would have been possible for Lazarus to be saved. And, and isn't, isn't a death that much more heartbreaking when it could have been prevented? That's what she's expressing here. Or if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's expressing grief. She says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Some people, some people read that statement and they think, oh, she knows Jesus, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That can't be true either. That can't be true because you, you read it. If you read it, she says, uh, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, yes, he will rise again when everyone rises at the last day. And when she says that, she's just expressing the typical Jewish belief. That's, that's a belief that, that Jews held in that day. That at the end of time, the righteous would, would rise to eternal life. She's got no category for a, a right now resurrection in the body. In fact, in verse 39, uh, when Jesus tells them, roll the stone away, she protests. She has no idea what Jesus is about to do. When Mary says, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask, she's not saying, I believe you're going to raise my brother from the dead right now. She's, she's just affirming her faith. She's saying, even now I believe in you. Even now, Jesus, I know, I, I believe that that the work you're doing is God's work. I believe that God is with you and that God's power is with you. I'm sad, but Jesus, I still believe. Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And I'm confident that she doesn't totally understand what he means based on what we just were talking about. But she says, yes, Lord, I have always, always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. So here we are, we're at the tomb of Lazarus, and Martha's heart is broken, and she doesn't totally understand the situation, and she doesn't know how Jesus will deliver, if at all, but she still has the spiritual wherewithal to say, Jesus, I still believe in you. At the tomb of Lazarus, the disciples are carrying fear. Martha is carrying faith. At the back of the crowd that comes to the tomb is Mary. 
She's, she's at the back. She's trailing with, with the mourners. They're weeping and wailing, and so is she. Okay, her, and she's, she's not put together like her older sister. Mary's a more contemplative type of woman. Her older sister maybe thinks that, um, maybe thinks that she's the overdramatic little sister. Okay, she's, her face is streaked with tears and dirt. There's a, there's a patchwork of white dust in the folds of her clothing because, um, because whereas Martha had come out and had a, a conversation with Jesus, Mary ran out to him recklessly. Uh, and verse 32 says, When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. She, she fell in, at his feet and said, Lord, if, you, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's words are verbatim her sister's words. Lord, if only you'd been here, but my, bro- my, my brother would not have died. It's, it's exactly what Martha said, except it's only the first part. See, see, like Martha, she comes out and she expresses grief. But Martha expressed grief and then faith. Ma- Mary stops at grief. It's possible that it's possible that she just you know was too overwhelmed to keep talking. I kind of think that. I kind of think that um, Mary spoke only grief and not faith because all she had was grief. Maybe you've been there. I think that she spoke grief and not faith because all she had was grief because like her brother, her faith was in a tomb. And so Jesus, um, Jesus had responded to Martha's words with words. For Mary, he responds to her tears with tears. Verse 33 says, While Jesus saw her weeping, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. And in verse 35 it says, Then Jesus wept. And so Jesus answers her tears with tears. He honors her grief with grief. And then he asks to be taken to the tomb. And verse 38 tells us, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. So this group of people have gathered at this tomb, and the disciples have come carrying fear, and, and Martha has come carrying faith, and Mary has come carrying grief and nothing more. So we are gathered today, and and what have you come carrying? We we all come carrying a variety of stuff, right? Maybe maybe like the disciples, you come carrying fear. Maybe you come carrying fear uh, of what will happen if you make that move or have that difficult conversation. Maybe you come carrying fear that tomorrow will never be 
better than today. Fear of trusting God, fear of something that's going to happen to your marriage or your, your children or your job or your friendships. Maybe you come carrying faith. Maybe like Martha, you have a firm belief. And, and even in the midst of difficulty, when you're not sure how this story ends, uh, you're, still, you're still affirming your trust in Jesus. Maybe you're like Mary and you come carrying grief. Because wh- whatever hit you in life has just has hit you too hard and too recently for you to get beyond grief today. Maybe you're not carrying any of these. Maybe you're carrying something else. Maybe regret, maybe gratitude. Maybe you're here today carrying bitterness or or joy or worship or trauma or blessing or abandonment. We all come from a variety of places, but what Jesus is about to say and do will cut through it all. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Have you noticed how many times the word believe comes up in this passage? In, in those verses and also in the whole story, right? Verse, verse 42, he ends by saying, you always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And before that, verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you you would see God's glory if you believe? And before that, verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And even before that, in verse 15 to the disciples, uh, he says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. If you pay attention in the Gospel of John, you will find that believing is a really important theme, that at all the key moments in the Gospel of John, this idea of believing um, comes up. And here we are in John chapter 11, and this story is just peppered with references to believing. Okay, like for most of for, for most of the Gospel of John, you know, the believe dial is turned up to ten. In this in this passage, he turns that dial up to eleven. Believe, believe, believe. Long ago, scholars recognized um, that there are kind of two big sections to the Gospel of John. The first twelve chapters. Are, this, are a fast-paced overview of Jesus' public ministry. Okay, three years uh, covered in, in half the book. Okay, and it's just the highlights. Okay, moves really quickly through the story. And then you get to chapter 13, and the whole second half of the book just slows to a crawl, and it's this slow and detailed uh, explanation of just the last week 
of Jesus' life. Two big sections in, in the Gospel of John. Scholars have nicknamed them the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. The first half of the Gospel of John is called the Book of Signs because that's, that's the pattern that we see. That's kind of the, the organizing principle of the first half of the Gospel of John. That again and again you see Jesus do a sign, and we've talked about how a sign is a miracle that points beyond itself and tells us about who Jesus is. Jesus will perform a sign, and then discussion will follow. And then he'll perform another sign, and discussion follows. That's what we've been walking through for uh, several months now. There are seven signs in the book of signs. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion or perfection. And so John, I think, deliberately chose seven. So we've seen Jesus, number one, turn water into wine. Number two, heal a sick boy. Number three, heal a paralyzed man. Number four, feed the 5,000. Number five, walk on water. Number six, give sight to a blind man. And number seven is about to unfold. Here we are in John chapter 11 is, is the seventh sign. It's the crowning sign. It's the climactic sign in the book of signs. Why is John writing about signs? He tells us, he tells us at the end of, of the book, he says, uh, the disciples saw Jesus do many other mir- miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, these signs are written here in this book so that you may continue to, what's that word? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So John says, he gets to the end of of his book, and he says, I've recorded Jesus' signs in order to prompt you to believe, in order to help you believe. That's why he's writing signs. And so here we are in John chapter 11, and it's the seventh sign, the crowning sign. And, and Jesus performs the, the miracle in such a way, and John writes it in such a way that it says, believe, believe, believe. Back in verses 5 and 6, it says, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And that's one way to translate it. Depending on your Bible, you might have that kind of translation of these verses. Um, there's another translation that's maybe a little more provocative. If you have an NA, uh, NASB or an ESV, it'll say something like this. It'll say, because Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Because he loved them, he stayed where he was. The Greek allows for either translation. Um, I think there's something to this translation. Because he loved them, he waited. How can Jesus waiting be an act of love? Probably the person who can answer that question best is Miracle Max. 
How many people remember Miracle Max from The Princess Bride? Yeah? Okay. So if you haven't seen the movie, I can't imagine you haven't seen the movie by now. Um, I've never sought out that movie, but I've seen it like six times. <laughs> so Inigo Montoya and Fezzik bring, uh, bring Wesley's limp, lifeless body to Miracle Max. And Miracle Max says, I got good news. Your friend here is only mostly dead. He says there's a big, big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Um, so, <laughs> the ancient Jews believed in mostly dead and all dead. The ancient Jews believed that when a person died, their soul would hover around their body for three days and then and hoping, hoping to re-enter the body and, and come back to life. But then on day four, decomposition will have set in and the soul uh, would give up and, and would depart for the afterlife. And so for three days after someone died, there was this faint hope. There was this faint hope. Oh, he's only mostly dead. The reason Jesus waits two days is that way when he gets to Lazarus, it's the fourth day and Lazarus is all dead. Jesus gets there. It's been four days. So according to Jewish belief, he's, he's all dead. So Jesus has waited. Jesus loved them. So he waited. Because now Jesus comes and and. He has left no doubt about what he's going to do for them. Jesus has, has left no doubt that, look, he's not, he's not coming here and he's not, he's not a resuscitator. He doesn't just know some kind of fancy CPR. He doesn't just bring people back from the edge of death. He brings people back from the depth of death, which is hard to say. On day four, death has a complete hold on Lazarus, and only a death killer could break that hold. Remember what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15. Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you'll really believe. Jesus loved them so he waited. Why? So that they'll really believe. See, everything Jesus does in this story and everything about the way that John writes it is inviting the disciples and Mary and Martha and the crowd and the readers of the Gospel of John and us to believe in Jesus. Because this is the seventh sign. It's the climactic sign, the crowning sign, the, the sign of perfection. And that's what signs do. That's what the book of signs has been doing all along, inviting us Believe, believe, believe. So you may have come here today carrying fear. You may have come here today carrying, carrying faith even in the midst of trial and maybe a faith that, even, that includes questions and maybe includes disappointment. You may have come here today carrying grief. You may 
come here today carrying something else. Let me ask you, do you believe in death or resurrection? Because the, whatever you're carrying, that belief will transform it. Do you believe in death or resurrection? Do you believe that the world is ultimately a cold, hard, dead place? Do you believe that death ultimately gets the last word, that the world is truly, ultimately dark and whatever light and goodness we find in this world is just a momentary interruption uh, in an otherwise meaningless existence that ends in ashes? Do you believe in death or resurrection? Are your fears, if you're carrying fears, are your fears justified? If you're carrying faith, will your faith be rewarded and your questions answered? If you're carrying grief, will your mourning turn to dancing? Do you believe in death or resurrection? Because the answer to that will transform everything. John and Jesus are inviting us to believe not in death, but in resurrection. They're inviting us to believe that Jesus is the creator of life and therefore he's stronger than death. They're inviting us to believe that the end of the story is not tombs and tears, to believe that greed and violence and abuse and injustice are not right and not final because they belong to death and death does not belong in Jesus' world. And so the question that this passage lays before us is simply, do you believe in death or resurrection? So seriously, do you? Which, which one is it? Do you believe in death or resurrection? I want to invite the worship team up right now. Uh, there is one more sign in the Gospel of John. We get seven signs in the book of signs. And then the whole second half, the whole book of glory is focused on one more sign. That sign, too, begins with a man in a tomb and a stone rolled across the entrance. And with heartbroken Jesus followers walking up to the tomb. And that sign, too, will end with Jesus inviting us to believe that he's stronger than death. But that's for another day. Let's wrap up. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. And they slowly unwrapped his burial clothes. And imagine the moment that they take the headcloth off of him and Lazarus, alive, looks his sisters in the eyes and laughing, they say, they say to themselves, resurrection wins. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this?
Let's stand as we respond in song.